BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. A couple of Supreme Court decisions that are just, I'm just bug-eyed over these things. I mean, it's just, it's, whoa. And of course, the progressives on the court are the Democratic nominees, shall we say, on the court. I'm not sure that you can call uh, any of them genuine, well, who knows, anyhow. The three Democratic nominees on the court all vigorously dissented, essentially saying that the uh, six conservatives on the court have gutted now Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Back when John Roberts gutted Section 5, the preclearance part, uh, he said, well, you always have Section 2. I mean, literally in the decision it said that, and now they're gutting that. So there's that. They also backed up the Koch network and other right-wing billionaires saying, hey, if you want to buy politicians or if you want to buy public opinion by carpet bombing, you know, the the land with uh, Facebook ads or television ads or whatever it may be, or if you want to just pour money down the throats of your favorite politician and keep secret, keep your identity hidden, all you have to do is run it through a nonprofit. It's obscene. It's absolutely obscene. And I will rant a little more about that in just a moment. We've got a big program today. And also some scientists are suggesting that we will soon see the day where heat-related deaths are actually killing, where the heat is killing more people than infectious diseases. In fact, we have hundreds now of deaths in the Pacific Northwest and many, many hundreds of deaths if you include British Columbia, you know, the, the southern part of Canada just north of us. Far more people have died from the heat than died in the condo collapse. But hey, the last five days have been all disaster porn condo collapse all the time. You know, presumably because there's major news bureaus in Miami and there are not major news bureaus in Seattle or Portland. I, you know, it's, it's my guess, but I, you know, who knows? Covering climate change is something that the media seems to be reluctant to do. Richard Wolf will be with us. You know, I want to get into the Supreme Court and dark money and and how do we change the rules on an economy and his thoughts on that. These two Supreme Court decisions just happened. So, you know, let me put that on your radar. Number one, as I mentioned, the court in this voting rights case said that here's the situation, for example, in Arizona, because this came out of a, a Ninth Circuit court decision, which covers Arizona. So in Arizona, if you are a Native American and you live on the reservation, only in the neighborhood of 20% of people who live on the reservation actually have a postal address. And because of the pandemic, and also just for pure convenience, I mean, very often Republicans who control the voting systems in Arizona only put one single polling location for a huge reservation that might cover you know, hundreds of square miles. And a lot of people don't have a car. And so people voted by mail. Well, to vote by mail, you have to have a postal address or get it to the post office. And so what happened was on the reservation, people would go around to people's homes that don't have postal addresses and pick up their ballots from them, all you know, sealed in their envelopes and everything, and take them and drop them in the mail for them or drop them in a drop box for them. Well, Arizona decided they didn't want Native Americans voting, and so they made that illegal. They called it ballot harvesting. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals looked at that and said, you know, this is illegal discrimination against Native American voters. Of course, Native American voters overwhelmingly vote Democratic, and so, of course, the Republicans in the Arizona Senate said, oh, we're going to stop this. 
and uh, six justices, six right-wing justices on the Supreme Court, every single one of them bought and paid for by big billionaire money, which is largely hidden, you know, the money going through the Federalist Society and whatnot, again, largely hidden, and that was the second decision, and they can continue hiding that money. So we've got a bought and paid for Supreme Court that just said that the bought and paid for Republican Party can continue to suppress the vote in Arizona. And, and of course, it's not going to be just Arizona. This is just has opened the door to an avalanche, an absolute flood of voter suppression legislation, which, you know, is like, hey, welcome to Jim Crow, too, as President Biden referred to it the other day. They just legalized Jim Crow. We are back to the Plessy versus Ferguson decision. I mean, we're not that far back, but we're moving in that direction. And this is what happens when you get right-wing billionaires owning, you know, in this case, Mitch McConnell, who refused to put Merrick Garland on the court for over 400 days, refused to even hold hearings. Because, uh, hey, you know, America's first black president is also a Democrat, and Democrats don't get to appoint Supreme Court justices. By the way, Stephen Breyer did not announce that he's retiring. He's 83. He's a Democratic appointee. I think he was a Clinton appointee. Which is, um, shall we say, concerning? So there's that. And backing up the privacy. Now, California had a law. And by the way, the For the People Act has this as a provision which means this is going to end up before the Supreme Court, too, if it gets passed, if they blow up the filibuster and pass it. But they had a law that said that, you know, giant nonprofits that accept money from anonymous sources or that refuse to disclose their sources, California had a law that said, you have to tell us who you are. If you're going to pour, you know, $50 million into an election to get a particular person into office or to get a particular policy passed with a ballot initiative, you have to tell us who you are. And the Supreme Court said, no, you don't. Not anymore. California, your law does not apply. And this is just so, so very wrong. It's like the news is like a fire hose this week. Over at HartmanReport.com is about Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby got the rich man's deal. Let me explain. I, and, I'm, and I'm quite serious about this. I, this. This is not hyperbole. This is not, you know, a metaphor. This is literally what happened. Is this prosecutor who then, you know, later went on to become one of Trump's lawyers and, you know, spreading Trump's insanity. So this, shall we say, low ethics prosecutor to begin with doesn't really want to send Bill Cosby to jail, you know, I mean, for whatever reason, you know, men sticking up for men, God only knows. But anyhow, he doesn't want to send Bill Cosby to jail. So he goes to the women who Bill Cosby had raped, or at least some of them, and says, at least the ones in his state, and says, how about I get some money out of him instead? You know, the guy's a multi, multi-millionaire. I mean, you know, I can get you tens of millions of dollars instead of putting him in jail. And a few of them said, okay, cool, let's do it. And so they do a civil lawsuit, and when they do the civil lawsuit, you know, there's no jail time in a civil lawsuit. It's civil rather than criminal. And so they do a civil lawsuit, and the prosecutor says to Cosby, if you tell the truth in the civil lawsuit, if you don't lie under oath in the depositions, we will not use that against you in a, in a criminal court. And Cosby's like, okay, cool, here's the truth. I gave these women drugs, got them knocked out, and then raped them. And the whole country goes, oh, my God, oh, my God. And all this blowback happens. And the prosecutor then says, whoa, I can't deal with this political pressure. So I'm going to try and throw Bill Cosby in jail, too. Or actually, I think by that time he had left and his office said that. But the point is that if Bill Cosby hadn't been worth millions, they wouldn't have tried a civil settlement to begin with. That's only something you can do with somebody who's got so much money that for victims, it's better to get millions of dollars than it is to throw somebody in jail. It's the rich man's deal. I mean, just, just think about it. This is what Donald Trump got too. Just imagine if you and I got together and said, hey, let's create a phony university. We'll put a, together a nice website. We'll put a, a well-known name at the, at the top of it. And, uh, you know, we will... Uh, 
let's let's start Tom Hartman University, and we will you and I, and you know uh, we will we will uh, use whatever credibility I have for this thing, and we'll we'll tell people you're going to get real degrees. And you can go out in the world and get a job with these degrees, or you can learn how to make money with these degrees. In Trump's case, it was real estate. And I'm going to teach you how to make money, and you're going to, you're going to do really well. And by the way, all you have to do is pay me tens, twenty, thirty thousand bucks. And you and I make millions. And the people who enrolled in our university got nothing. Bupkis. Worse than nothing. They learned less than they could have learned on a couple of YouTube videos. But you and I are not rich. What happens? We get busted for fraud and we go to jail. The federal jail and state jails, jails are full of people who are there because of fraud. So why isn't Donald Trump in jail? Well, because he could afford to pay a $25 million fine. The people that he screwed got together and said, you know, we'd rather have our money back than see him go to jail. So Trump University pays 20, you know, Trump pays $25 million and shuts down Trump University. Same thing. What if you and I started a, a private charity? and said, we're going to go out and solicit money from rich people, and we're just going to put that money in our pocket, which is highly illegal. I mean, there are nonprofits all over this country that very, very carefully keep track of their, their accounting and their expenses so that this kind of thing doesn't happen. But that's exactly what uh, Trump's charity did. Him and Don Jr. and Ivanka and, uh, what's his name, Eric, and Princess Ivanka, I mean, you know, the four of them, we're just feeding at the trough of the so-called Trump charity. And what does the prosecutor say? Oh, you, you have to shut it down. Sorry, can't do that. Rich people don't go to jail in this country. Think about, you know, tell me the name of the last really, truly rich person that you know who went to jail. You know, the former CEO of United Healthcare. Not Hemsley, who almost made a billion, but the guy before him, Dollar Bill McGuire, he made one point, about one and a half billion dollars out of United Healthcare, the big insurance company. And the federal government came and said, hey, wait a minute, at least 300 million of this it, you took fraudulently. Now, I, I guarantee you, if you, you know, you're an average Joe and you figured out a way to get 300 million bucks out of a company and stick it in your own pocket fraudulently, they wouldn't just say, hey, would you please pay this back? You'd find your ass in prison. But Dollar Bill McGuire, hey, I can just write you a check for a couple hundred million dollars. So, you know, name for me one really, truly rich person who committed these kind of crimes that the average small time, you know, you pass a bad check, you go to jail. For 50 bucks at the local Walmart, you go to jail. And when I say, you know, name a rich person who went to jail, people, the one name people always say is Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff didn't start out a rich guy. And by the way, you know, Bernie Madoff's main crime was rich, ripping off people who were richer than him. So the lesson of that isn't that people go to jail for fraud. It's that people go, for, go to jail when they defraud rich people. Donald Trump, Trump University was ripping off average people. Bill Cosby was not raping socialites. He was raping women who wanted to be actors and actresses. I mean, it's... This, this is, we have a two-tiered, Michael Cohen, you know, he paid off uh, Stormy Daniels and, and uh, Karen McDougal on behalf of Donald Trump, a crime that he went to prison for, and Donald Trump ordered it. And Alan Weisselberg cut the checks. Are they going to prison? Oh, no. Oh, no. We don't do that to rich people in this country. And now the Supreme Court says rich people can continue to own elections and do it in secret. We need to do away with this two-tiered criminal justice system and do it now. Peter in New York City. Hey, Peter, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. How are you? I am great, but I'll get better, Peter. What's, what's up? Yeah, I just ordered your book on the hidden history of American oligarchy, and it should be here today or tomorrow. I'm looking forward to reading it. My question to you today is, what part do you think that NAFTA played in exacerbating white tensions and white supremacy? I believe that we lost one-third of our industrial jobs. Yeah, and, more or less. 
it's like a dog chasing its tail. I mean, you've got something happens, and then that provokes this response. Uh, you know, A happens, and that provokes B response, and then B happens, you know, becomes full-blown, and that produces C response, and then C happens, and that brings you back to A, right, and, and causes more of A to happen. So where this all started, and this is actually a fascinating history, Peter, and, and one of these days I'm going to write a book, or in fact, I proposed a hidden history book on this very topic, The Hidden History of Trade. Mm -hmm. Where this started was the idea that if we increase trade around the world, we will decrease wars. This was the theory of the European Union. This is what brought the European Union together. If, if everybody's doing business with everybody else, they have a strong incentive not to go to war with everybody else. And one of the reasons why, one of the things that was an exacerbating factor in past wars in Europe was trade conflicts. Um, you know, mm -hmm. protectionism. So we're going to eliminate protectionism and we're going to flatten the playing field. And that, and that actually can work when everybody is at pretty much the same place. In other words, the cost of labor in France and the cost of labor in Germany and the cost of labor in Spain and the cost of labor in England were all pretty much the same. And the ability to be industrialized were all pretty much the same. And so if you all get together and create a giant trade group, uh, you actually do decrease the risk of war. So that but that's theoretical, but that's theoretically. Well, yeah, no, actually, I think the, 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 the experience of the European Union has actually demonstrated it after two world wars in, in you know, within a 20 year period, uh, you know, back in the first half of the 20th century before this. But here's where it gets bad. So then you take that logic. The Reagan administration took that logic, and there were a bunch of neoliberal think tanks back in the day, groups like, you know, the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies and other ones. I'm forgetting the name of the guy. You know, he wrote a book, The End of History and the Last Man. Francis Fukuyama wrote that book. And basically what they said was the whole world should adopt this policy that Europe did to end all wars all around the world. And so if we simply say to Bangladesh, where labor is 20 cents an hour, or to wow. China, where labor can be 30 cents an hour, you, we're going to flatten the trade, or Mexico, where labor is a dollar an hour, we're going to flatten mm -hmm. the playing field and we're all going to engage in free trade and we're no longer going to protect our domestic markets, including our labor markets. Pockets. If we do that, then we're going to end wars around the world. And the side effect of that was the destruction of the working class in the wealthier countries, specifically the United mm -hmm. States, and well, the I raising well, of a new middle class in countries like China and Mexico. Now, when, now this takes us, now that's A, so that takes us to B. B was, as the middle class collapses in America, most of the American middle class is white, and you got a whole bunch of white people who are now out of jobs and out of the middle class, and they're looking around going, what the hell happened? And then you get these That's demagogues coming That's in and saying, oh, it's black people point. who want your jobs, or it's women who want your jobs, or it's exactly. Mexicans who want your jobs. And exactly. then you've got this white rage that comes out of this that produces this situation and then provides a fertile ground for people like Donald Trump to come in and say, just make me dictator and I will, you know, I will stop this. And of course, he had no intention of stopping it because it's very profitable for the people who supported him. Did I answer your question, so Peter? So do you agree with that, that NAFTA exacerbated these racial tensions? That I do. Yes, that's what I really think, too. Yeah, I think basically, I mean, we always had people in the country that were, you know, racists who were white supremacists. But I think as long as they were benefiting, they were okay, everything was fine. But all of a sudden, they lost their industrial job. And they that's can right. no longer make their mortgage payment. They can no longer send their kids to college. That's they can right. no, no longer meet their, their car loan. Then everything, then all of a sudden, you know. Right. Uh, and these were policies, by the way, that were being promoted during the Reagan and Bush administrations. In fact, Reagan and Bush negotiated, renegotiated the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, the GATT, which produced the World Trade Organization. And they also negotiated NAFTA. Bill Clinton signed it, but it was negotiated during the during the George Herbert Walker Bush presidency in 1991. I was, and, I was so incredulous. I didn't believe a word of it. Not a word of it. Yeah. Well, neither did Ross Perot and neither did most of us. Peter, thanks a lot for the call. <laughs> You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Back with more of your calls and the news of the day right after this. Hey, it's Kate.
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club. Today we're reading from Free Trade Doesn't Work, What Should Replace It and Why by Ian Fletcher. This is from the introduction, which is titled Why We Can't Trust the Economists. The book, by the way, was written, I think, around 2010 or 11. America's trade deficit, $696 billion in 2008, $701 billion in 2007, and a world record $760 billion in 2006. Even if it's fallen by half in 2009, a temporary plunge we've seen in past recessions that probably doesn't signify underlying improvement. A $370 billion trade deficit is still astronomical by any reasonable historical standard. To be fair, the trade deficit is not a perfect indicator of free trade's cost. A nation can always ba balance its trade by crude measures like forcing down wages by political fiat. So hypothetically, we could have a small deficit and a large trade problem. Plenty of impoverished third world nations have balanced trade, and a single year's deficit means nothing. But with numbers this high, our deficit is obviously a big problem, if it's a problem at all. And yet Americans remain afraid to do anything about it. The dangers of protectionism are notorious, and questioning free trade in an intellectually serious way runs into deep waters of economics very fast. So we remain paralyzed in the face of crisis. Over the last 20 years, Americans have brought over $6 trillion, that's trillion with a T, more from the world, bought more from the world than we have sold back to it. That's over $20,000 per American. Ironically, if the U.S. were a developing country, our deficits would have reached the 5% level that the International Monetary Fund takes as the benchmark of financial crisis. The U.S. economy has ceased generating any net new jobs in internationally traded sectors in either manufacturing or services. The comforting myth persists that America is shifting from low-tech to high-tech employment, but we are not. We're losing jobs in both and shifting to non-trade services, which are mostly low-value added and thus ill-paid jobs. According to the Commerce Department, all our net new jobs are in categories such as security guards, waitresses, and the like. The vaunted new economy has not contributed a single net new job to America in this century. Not one. The alchemy of, financial, of international finance that lets America run a seemingly infinite overdraft against the rest of the world looks suspicious, too, because... That's what it means to endlessly import more than we export. But where does the money come from at the end of the day? Can we really get something for nothing forever? Or are we in for another crisis like the 2008 financial crisis? Subprime mortgages looked too good to be true, and then they blew up. The aftershocks are still hitting us. Is trade going to be the next shoe to drop? Common sense seems to say that American workers are going to have problems when we trade with nations such as China and India, where the average wage is a dollar an hour or less. Corporate America even admits with barely concealed glee that competition from foreign labor has American workers pinned. As one Goodyear vice president put it, quote, until we get real wage levels down much closer to those of the Brazils and Koreas, we cannot pass along productivity gains to wages and still be competitive, end quote. Brazil, Korea, our wages? These nations and others are booming as exporters to the United States, but they remain far too poor to take back enough of our exports to balance our trade. Their combination of dreadful wages and regulatory standards on the one hand and winning economic strategies on the other has so far produced nothing like the living standards needed to make them significant importers of American goods. Despite recent decades of economic growth, there are still over a billion people in Asia earning less than $2 a day. Working conditions are the flip side of low pay in developing countries. Production methods long ago abandoned in the developed world, many of them dangerous and environmentally unsound, are still widely in use. In India, for example, foundry workers often don't wear socks, shoes, protective headgear, earplugs, or even eye protection. Often wearing no more than boxer shorts, they squat on the floor next to roaring furnaces. Charles Dickens has moved to Asia. 
The environment is threatened also. Thousands of foundries in China run on industrial-grade coke with no pollution control devices in their smokestacks, creating a plume of smoke that stretches across the Pacific on satellite photos. Chlorofluorocarbons are banned in the United States, but still used in China as a blowing agent for the production of polyurethane foam cushions and the like, providing a significant cost advantage for Chinese manufacturers. None of this happens by accident. Foreign governments treat trade as war and use every trick in the book, legal and illegal under international agreements, to grab their industries a competitive advantage. And even when they don't cheat, they are often more skilled in cultivating their industries than we are. Toyota somehow didn't go bankrupt when GM did. All these facts impinge upon America because of free trade. But economists keep telling us everything will be fine. According to them, free trade is good for us and they can prove it. 93% of American economists surveyed support free trade. This inescapably raises the question of whether they've been doing their jobs or whether America should stick with the policy that they've recommended. This is a book about real-world economic problems, brutally real problems. But it's also a book about economic theory, because in economics, raw facts don't mean much without a theory to interpret them. This is especially true for parts of economics that are as controversial and theoretically unsettled as trade. Wrong theories helped get America into its current trade mess, so we need to get the right theories to get us out of it. Not only theories, of course, but we won't be able to do without them. Can't we just find a practical solution? That's the instinct of many Americans who find economic theory obtruse and often baffling. Unfortunately, not. Free trade doesn't work. These uh, deaths in the Pacific Northwest, I think this is a big deal. Hundreds of deaths in British Columbia, Washington, and Oregon. Hundreds of deaths, this from uh, today's New York Times. Hundreds of deaths in British Columbia, Washington, and Oregon have been linked to a heat wave that has roasted the Pacific Northwest for days and broken Canadian heat records, sending hundreds of thousands of people scrambling for relief. Welcome to the new normal. And how did we get to this new normal? 50 years of the fossil fuel industry lying to us about what they knew about how their product was going to be devastating our, our environment, our, specifically our atmosphere. Louise and I walked into work this morning and all along the way there's like English ivy along the streets and things. I mean, it's an invasive species here, but I. <laughs> We have tried on numerous occasions, you know, we've, we've, we've lived in places, it's like bamboo, you know, you can't get rid of English ivy, it's, it's impossible to kill. Well, you know, large swashes of the English ivy around us are dead. They're just dead. Because, uh, because it got so hot. I mean, it's just in, in heat shock. It's amazing. Chuck in New York City. Hey, Chuck, what's up? Oh, hey, Tom, can you hear me? I can. Oh, okay. Um, so I was at a party, and this guy was talking to me about this climate denier, Tony Heller. I don't know if you've ever heard I, of him. I've never heard of him. I mean, there's, there's no shortage of them. The, the fossil fuel industry has been literally pouring millions of dollars into this hole for years. Yeah. And he basically says that there's like a double top in the, uh, the heat rising chart, like in the stocks, you know, when it goes up and it goes down and it goes back up. And he says in the 1940s, we had similar uh, heat increases. No, we didn't. And, and we, no, we didn't. So I have no way of, of telling this guy, you know. Well, don't, guess, don't even bother. These people are, are either shills or they're deluded. You can't, you, I mean, you can't argue with climate deniers. It's, it's like trying to argue with people who are claiming that the earth is flat. And, and the proof is you can go out and look. Well, he says that the science is like that. that yeah, there doesn't seem to be any any debate about it. Like, if you ask the average uh, climate change person who you know wants to reverse it, they can't really give you any scientific. You know, I mean, uh, everybody. Chuck, there is a ton before. of science. There's an absolute ton of science, and I'm not going to have you doing climate change denial on my program either. Uh, that that's nuts. I, I mean, it's just, I, oh man. Patrick in East Lansing, Michigan. Hey, Patrick, what's on your mind today? 
Oh, hi there. I tried to call yesterday, but this is about climate change and what happened in Ohio uh-huh. and what's happening in Michigan and what happened on the Capitol Steps Tuesday. They all relate to climate change, and we feel powerless about climate change, but there's small steps that would make massive changes. One of them is rooftop solar. One of them is ending fossil fuel subsidies. And lest anyone asks why that's true, they should get this book by Paul Hawken called Drawdown because he gives the yes. exact number of gigatons reduction and how cost-effective it is. So if we just had rooftop solar, the 10th on his list of 80 um, solutions, we would spend $450 billion, but we get $3.5 trillion in savings um, in, in terms of reductions in CO2. So what happened in Ohio? Last week, they made it virtually impossible to have rooftop solar with the most strict of all regulations in the whole country. It's now going to come to the other 32 states that have restrictions. It's HB 4236. And they essentially said you have to have a local resolution and a local siting board. The state Senate appoints the members because they have a state siting board that would have done this fairly. The governor has to consent. And then 50 people in a township or county can overturn the ordinance. This makes it virtually no one's going to invest in rooftop solar. Michigan, we have the exact same problem. We're at a 1% cap, and we ran a ballot initiative in 2012. And we spent $14 million, and we were the odds-on favorite to win. They spent $28 million. We did it again in 2018 with Tom Steyer's help. We were knocked off the ballot by a legal challenge. My point is that this is the picking of the low fruit, and we're not doing it, and we're not yeah. ending fossil fuel subsidies. Yeah, and, and the consequence is going to be more dead people. And and you know possibly a civilizational threatening global global climate change that'll be coming down the road somewhere between probably ten and a hundred years from now. Patrick, thank you. I think these two can be reversed. I hope so. I hope so. Keep us up to date, please, Patrick. That's really good information. Thank you. Chrissy in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Chrissy, what's on your mind today? I hear everything you guys are talking about, and it sounds like the parents on Peanuts. Wah, wah, wah. Because literally, I cared passionately about all of this stuff up until a couple of months ago when I joined a Facebook group called Faster Than Previously Expected, and I started learning how truly things have changed in the climate catastrophe problem. And it scares me so much because literally all I can think about is that we only have like a year or two left on this planet and it's going to get bad. Chrissy, and I feel like we Chrissy, should be stop. out in the streets. Stop. We don't we have a lot more than a year or two left on this planet. And people can you put don't together understand the leptic sea, all the methane that's be, I mean, it's melting. The Arctic is melting. There are That's terrible like things happening. I agree with you. And they are things that have the potential to destroy civilization as we know it. But not in the next year. It's going to be probably in the next 30 to 50, maybe 100 years. And no. it's, but life is getting tough. I mean, it was 116 degrees here day before yesterday. It has never been that yeah. way. We and are seeing radical stuff. But, but I'm telling like, you, Chrissy, there are people who will use... You know, just like they reach out to the right to try to radicalize and freak people out and get them so terrified and so so upset that they will then start throwing money at these people or giving them political power or or get sucked into their cults. There are people on the left doing the exact same thing. Nobody's trying to extract money from me. I'm just looking at articles from scientists and NASA and all sorts of concerned citizen groups. You know, I had Guy McPherson on this program several years I, ago, Chrissy, talking about how we'd all be dead by now. Yes, I know. But it's like what's happening right now is like a game change. And I think that our governments should, all the world governments should be coming together to try and figure out how to do, you know, capture of CO2 and put it in the cement or Something, I not agree. Just I agree. And stop burning fossil fuels. I, you know, I completely yeah, agree. Completely. And there's there's a lot that needs to be done and it needs to be done worldwide. And it's probably going to take 
a major disaster, sort of like you know the, the 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 apartment building collapsing down in or the condo collapsing down in Florida is now all of a sudden you got 170 buildings down there that they're they're pulling in the inspectors. They're going to do something about it. It uh, you know sadly this is part of the human condition that we respond to disasters rather than to uh, warnings. Uh, you know it's the whole Cassandra story, but it is not something that we should be frightened by or crying about. It's something that we should be energized by and getting active about. And I'm literally terrified. Just well, don't every be. thought I have is like, what does it matter? We're going to be dead soon. We're not. And I'm not. I'm not crazy. Chrissy, I, don't I know you're not crazy. I'm... The odds are you will die of old age, and probably well, I, so will your I children. Hope you're right. And, no, I am right. You know, I mean, uh, Chrissy, please don't promote that group on this program or anywhere else, because th this is one of the strategies that whether it's people, you know, whether it's trolls from Russia or Saudi Arabia or whether it's, you know, you know, the fossil fuel industry trying to flip you out or whether it's well-intentioned people who are just like, you know, the world is going to end. I've been hearing that the world was going to. I remember in the 1970s, Hal Lindsey publishing a book, The Late Great Planet Earth. There were in the Christian right, they were convinced that the world was going to end by 1978. And Hal Lindsey sold no. millions of books and became very rich doing that. The, there are people who have agendas beyond just saving the world. It is important that we stop using fossil fuels as quickly as possible. And, and, you know, there's a lot that we can do. And the number one thing that we could do in the United States right now is, you know, more than half of all the fossil fuels that we burn in the United States are transportation and housing. And we can change that. We can heat our, our houses with electricity and we can run our cars with electricity and we can generate electricity in a sustainable fashion. And we can do that within a decade. It's just going to take six and or seven trillion dollars. And so if we want to get there, rather than rather than promoting Facebook groups that are hating on scientists and, and encouraging people to be freaked out, what we need to be doing is is pushing politicians, particularly Democratic politicians, to say, yes, give us that six or seven trillion dollar you know, program through reconciliation and let's reboot this country. Let's build it back better and let's let's get things going. But you know, in their post, though, it's not like they're saying it in their post. It's like when you read down in comments, that's where that stuff comes of, from. Of, it's yeah, but of, their posts are just talking about facts. Yeah, about well, maybe, maybe not. Again, I can't, I can't speak to it. I haven't looked at the site, but I'm very familiar with with the sites like this, Chrissy, and I've been through them. I've written two books on this. I've done a deep dive into it, and it it is terrible. It's a very serious situation. And hundreds of millions of people are going to be displaced by sea level rise all around the world. And, and, and I think, frankly, what we saw in Florida right now is the early stages of that. We're going to see large parts of the world have become you, uninhabitable for agriculture the, and things. But where, where all of our waste from nuclear power plants is stored right next to the nuclear power plants that are right by the ocean. Many of them, yes, absolutely. And there's, you know, the, the, see, this is catastrophism. Yes, that is all true. And there are things we can do about it. And, and we need to be focusing on solutions rather than trying to whip up hysteria. I want solutions. I want action. I want action now. Then, I don't want... Then show up in, you're in Madison, Wisconsin, show up in your local Democratic Party and, and, and say... I do. We, good. And keep on the pressure and keep pushing and reach out and start pushing every Democrat you can because right now the Republican Party is not only no help in this, they are actively opposing any effort to do anything about it. They are literally the only political party on earth in any right, developed country on earth that denies climate change. But we got to do something about that. Chrissy, thank you. Professor Richard Wolff is with us, The Economist, the co-founder of democracyatwork.info. His most recent book, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, also available as an e-book. Uh, rdwolf.com with two Fs uh, as well, democracy at WRK on Twitter or Prof Wolf. Professor Wolf, welcome back. The Supreme Court basically ruled that if, uh, if you're a billionaire or a giant corporation and you want to pour money down the throat of an individual politician or pour money into a ballot initiative to uh, defeat a carbon tax or to promote, uh, you know, some, uh, well, for example, we had a caller just a, few, a little bit ago who said that in Ohio, 
they are passing laws to make it almost impossible to put rooftop solar on your house. And this, of course, is the fossil fuel industry and the big power companies uh, promoting this. That it, you can continue to do this secretly with dark money. As an economist with an acute political understanding, what does this all mean to you? What does this say to you? What, what, do, we, what do you think about this and what do we do about this? Well, the first thing is nobody should get lost in the weeds here. This is an attempt by the right wing in the United States, and by that I mean the political representatives of big business, of the class of employers, uh, getting their way. They can't quite control the Congress, although they have a lot of influence. They can't quite control the president. Again, they have a lot of influence. But they do control six to three, uh, pretty much, what the Supreme Court does. And so if this is the act of the Supreme Court serving those who put them there directly, indirectly, through uh, Donald uh, Trump. You're right, but let me expand on it about what this means. Number one, this allows the secret funding, and of course that's only interesting to people who have enough wealth to fund anything like this. And we're talking the richest people in the country and the biggest corporations because they have the largest funds to give to any charity. So they can now set up a charity give it a ton of money so that it appears to the public that the charity, which they'll give some innocuous name to, is uh, doing this, that, or whatever their dirty business is, and you won't be able to call out to understand who's manipulating public opinion because the donors, the, big, the rich people, the large corporations can keep their name secret. Now, I'm no lawyer, and I don't pretend to be, but let me explain why this is as outrageous as I hope most people understand it to be. When you give donors the right to contribute to a tax-exempt uh, charitable institution, you are depriving the United States of America of tax money. In other words, the law had to be passed giving the donor the right to deduct from taxable income of the donor the amount of money given to this charity now in secret, given this uh, ruling. This is outrageous because we the people are hurt by a public action, giving them lower taxes than they would otherwise have to pay. And I, for the one, one do not understand why we, the taxpayers hurt by this exemption, do not have the right to know who is taking advantage of it and for how much money. And again, to make the point, there is an IRS form called Form 990. All tax-exempt institutions have to file that form. And on that form, they are required to name and give the salaries of the top five administrative uh, persons in that entity and the highest five paid persons. For example, every university in America has to file that document every year, and there it is listed how much the president of the university gets and the other four uh, top officials and how much the, the highest five paid professors get. No one is questioning that. The government has the right, and by the way, Form 990s are public information that anyone can get, and you can find that out. Why in the world, if we do that to a university, to the Red Cross, or to anybody else like this, we do not require wealthy donors to reveal that they are using a legally um, empowering piece of legislation to reduce the taxes they would otherwise contribute to support this society, and we don't ask anything in return. This is a service to the richest people saying, you are now free not only to use your money to shape the politics and culture of this country, but you can do it in secret, and you can still lower your taxes by doing so.
Yeah, and, and you can get laws passed or rules passed or Supreme Court decisions that work to your benefit. And let's make it very Absolutely. clear, all three of these people that Trump put on the court were brought to the court and, and literally multi-million, in some cases tens of millions of dollars were spent on public relations campaigns around the country, on lobbying campaigns with members of Congress to get them on the court, and we still don't know where that money came from. And, and yeah. go ahead. Yeah, it's, you know, you might amend the famous old remark, uh, this is the best money that dark money, uh, this is the best government, excuse me, that dark money can buy. Yeah. Uh, yes, you just gave them another favor that they can do in secret what they have been doing uh, all along. It is beyond words. It, it, it gives advantages to those at the top. It reminds me of a statistic, if you pardon me, Tom, uh, to get in that the Bloomberg just released, that over the last year and a half, the 500 richest people in the world increased their wealth. They together, by the way, now have $8.4 trillion, these 500 people. But over the last year and a half, when the world suffered a COVID epidemic, the wealth of this 500 person group grew by 40 percent. These are obscene dimensions of the society we live in, and I'm afraid there's no other word that would apply to what the Supreme Court has done here. Now, I I know that you're a a student of not just economics, but also the political dimensions of economics. You've written extensively about this. You're a student of, of, uh, for example, Marxism and and, and capitalism and socialism. And I, all these things are, are, are not just meaningful to you. I mean, you've taught them at the university level and you write books about them. I've written two books that I think impinge on this, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, which is about how we're basically no longer a democracy. We are an oligarchy and what we might be able to do about it. And The Hidden History of the Supreme Court, The Betrayal of America, which is how the Supreme Court, starting with the Buckley decision in 76 and then leading up to Citizens United, largely brought us here, not to say that we haven't always been an oligarchy in many ways. Um, in that context, I'm curious your thoughts. What would you call this form of government that, this, the, that the six conser- so-called conservatives on the Supreme Court are trying to impose upon us? Well, it strikes me as an oligarchy, but an oligarchy that, to be honest, I'm a little bit surprised, I admit it. I'm surprised that when you get to this level of inequality, When you get to this level of disproportionate political and cultural control by a tiny minority of the people, I would have thought, and maybe this is my naivete, I would have thought that they would be careful not to kill the goose that's laying these golden eggs for them. I would have thought there'd be more than Warren Buffett saying we shouldn't have a tax system this way that keeps rewarding uh, the people at the top who don't need it at the expense of the mass of people who do. But we don't. We have an oligarchy which is almost in an insane way pushing further. It has no limits. It has no boundary. It is literally going to drive itself in my judgment, to its own extinction. And it's decisions like this that are going to enable it to go even further, which it is determined to do, and which will be, I am really convinced, its own undoing. Yeah, if we, if for example, we can't change the courts, if if we can't succeed over the next few years doing something about this, uh, this is uh, the, the doom. Yeah, for, we're done. Yeah, yeah. We're done. That's right. Professor Richard Wolf, thank you so much. It's great talking with you, as always. Same here, Tom. Thank you. Thanks. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, 
you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Our book today is The War on Normal People by Andrew Yang. This is from Chapter 2, How We Got Here, page 12. The Great Displacement didn't arrive overnight. It has been building for decades as the economy and labor markets changed in response to improving technology, financialization, changing corporate norms, and globalization. In the 1970s, when my parents worked at GE and Blue Cloth Blue Shield in upstate New York, their companies provided generous pensions and expected them to stay for decades. Community banks were boring businesses that let money to local companies for a modest return. Over 20% of workers were unionized. Some economics problems existed. Growth was uneven and inflation periodically high, but income inequality was low. Jobs provided benefits, and Main Street businesses were the drivers of the economy. There were only three television networks, and in my house we watched them on a TV with an antenna that we fiddled with to make the picture clearer. That all seems awfully quaint today. Pensions disappeared for private sector employees years ago. Most community banks were gobbled up by mega banks in the 1990s. Today, five banks control 50% of the commercial banking industry, which is self-mushroomed to the point where finance enjoys about 25% of all corporate profits. Union membership fell by 50%. 94% of the jobs created between 2005 and 2015 were temp or contractor jobs without benefits. People working multiple gigs to make ends meet is increasingly the norm. Real wages have been flat or even declining. The chances that an American born in 1990 will earn more than their parents are down to 50%. For Americans born in 1940, the same figure was 92%. Thanks to Milton Friedman, Jack Welch, and other corporate titans, the goals of large companies began to change in the early 70s and early 1980s. The notion they espoused that a company exists only to maximize its share price became gospel in business schools and boardrooms around the country. Companies were pushed to adopt shareholder value as their sole measuring stick. Hostile takeovers, shareholder lawsuits, and later activist hedge funds served as prompts to ensure the managers were committed to profitability at all costs. On the flip side, CEOs were granted stock options for the first time that wedded their individual gain to the company's share price. The ratio of CEO to worker pay rose from 20 to 1 in 1965 to 271 to 1 in 2016. Benefits were streamlined and reduced, and the relationship between company and employee weakened to become more transactional. Simultaneously, the major banks grew and evolved as Depression-era regulations separating consumer lending and investment banking were abolished. Financial deregulation started under Ronald Reagan in 1980 and culminated in the Financial Services Modernization Act of 1999 under Bill Clinton that really set the banks loose. The securities industry grew 500% as a share of GDP between 1980 and the 2000s, while ordinary bank deposits shrank from 70 to 50%. Financial products multiplied as even Main Street companies were driven to pursue financial engineering to manage their affairs. GE, my dad's old company, and once a beacon of manufacturing, became the fifth biggest financial institution in the country by 2007. With improved technology and new access to global markets, American companies realized they could outsource manufacturing, information technology, and customer service to Chinese and Mexican factories and Indian programmers and call centers. U.S. companies outsourced and offshored 14 million jobs by 2013, many of which had previously been filled by domestic workers at higher wages. This resulted in lower prices, higher efficiencies, and some new opportunities, but also increased pressures on American workers who now had to compete in a global labor pool. Automation started out on farms earlier in the century with tractors and then migrated to factories in the 1970s. Manufacturing employment began to slip around 1978 as wage growth began to fall. Median wages used to go up in lockstep with productivity and GDP growth before diverging sharply in the 1970s. Since 1973, productivity has skyrocketed relative to the hourly compensation of the average wage earner. 
how workers are compensated and how their companies perform stopped even being aligned over the same period. Even as corporate profitability has soared to record highs, workers are earning less. The share of GDP going to wages has fallen from almost 54% in 1970 to 44% in 2013. While the share going to corporate profits went from 4% to 11%. Being a shareholder has been great for your bottom line. Being a worker, not so much. Today, inequality has surged to historic levels, with benefits flowing increasingly to the top 1% and 20% of earners due to an aggregation of capital at the top and increased winner-take-all economics. The top 1% have accrued 52% of the real income growth in America since 2009. Technology is a big part of this story as it tends to lead to a small handful of winners. Studies have shown that everyone is less happy in an unequal society, even those at the top. The wealthy experience higher levels of depression and suspicion in unequal societies. Apparently being high status is easier when you don't feel bad about it. Companies can now prosper, grow, and mint record profits without hiring many people or increasing wages. Both job creation and wage growth have been weaker than the top-line economic growth would suggest since the 1970s. In each of the last several decades, the economy has created lower percentages of new jobs, including no new net jobs between 2000 and 2010. Andrew Yang, The War on Normal People. And welcome back. Tom in Pasadena, California. Hey, Tom, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? Yes, I wanted to talk about climate change and the warming that's happening. And, and I had a couple of thoughts, I think, that are underutilized and underemphasized, and several of your speakers have spoken about the problems with converting to solar panel and renewable energy, and this is a main thrust. Um, I think that's true, and it's very important that we reduce our fossil fuel usage, and we're in that process now, and, and there's good movement in that direction. Uh, but I think there are two other areas that are probably as important or even more effective for us to address uh, greenhouse gas production and, uh, and our global warming. And one is, and it's been, uh, both these are kind of off limits, so to speak, politically, but one is animal livestock and carnism, I guess, uh, contribute as much greenhouse gas as the transportation industry, right. about 14%. And it's clear that we're in the process of going to electric vehicles, but it's not all that clear that we're going to veganism from carnism. And that's a personal decision that's easy to make, and people could incredibly reduce the greenhouse gases produced. The second kind of long-term solution to our over-greenhouse gassing is our overpopulation. Yes. Uh, we're at 8 billion people now. In uh, 1970s, we were at 4 billion. In 1930, we were at 2 billion. And if we reduced our population through a global one-child policy, we'd be back down to 4 billion in 50 years. And it's, that is the long-term solution, is yeah. that people may not be able to change their behavior, but we could reduce our overall population. And here's the thing, Tom, we're consuming natural resources at a rate that would require four planet Earths to simply be sustainable. Yes. And yes. if we don't reduce our population through rational means, and the, and the principal way to do yes. that, by the way, is to empower women. So that when women have equal political and yes. economic power with men, population uh, typically goes below maintenance levels. It, it drops below two and drops substantially and you know which is the so-called problem <laughs> that you know some of the advanced yes. economies of the world are seeing now i think it's not a problem mm -hmm. i think it's a good thing but you know you just have to accommodate you, you have to deal with you know what how that's going to change the economy of your of your nation but if we don't do this intentionally it's going to be done yes. to us by our environment and it is, actually. I mean, you know, it yeah. is being done to us right I now. I mean, look at Bangladesh. Look at, uh, I mean, look at large parts of the world that are being whacked by climate change. You know, Central America, Central Africa, yes. large chunks of China right now. These areas along yes. the equator, basically, you know, that are becoming unlivable. Food production yes. areas yes. in California that are losing their ability to produce food. 
and California is producing what 40 45 percent of all the fruits and vegetables consumed in the United States you know which is you know the, the primary should be the primary part of our diets and I agree with you on the CAFOs the, the concentrated animal feeding operations so-called factory farms and and the yeah. need to become vegan or at least become broadly vegan I'm with you Tom thank you okay Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercote, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabberwocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carne Verde. All the folks who work on this program. And thank you to you for uh, participating with our program and spreading the good word and supporting our sponsors and our stations. Get out there, get active, tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.